Hello, everybody. This is a special high holiday edition of Essential Questions. We've missed you the last few months over the summer, and we have this very special occasion today during the month of Elul to talk about how we prepare for the High Holy Days. In ancient times, on the first day of Elul, the high priest would retire to a secluded area in order to begin preparations for the celebration of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The high priest would prepare himself and purify himself and do all of the spiritual preparations necessary so that he could enter into the Holy of Holies on the holiest day of the year, not simply to atone for himself and for all of the deeds for which he needed to ask forgiveness, but also for his family and the community and the entirety of the people of Israel. So those who lead Jewish communities also use the month of Elul for similar kinds of preparations. We use this time not only to prepare for leading the High Holy Day worship for our congregations and community, but also to do our own spiritual preparations for the atonement and the repentance we need to do so that we can have our own sense of pure hearts and spirits as we enter into the holy period of the new year and the entirety of the new year as it begins. And so there's sort of this mixed kind of a role that we as members of the clergy play in approaching the High Holy Days, where part of it is personal and part of it is professional. And the melding of those two things makes it a lot of fun and often challenging. People sometimes will ask, so how are those High Holiday preparations going? And I don't know if they're talking about how I'm dealing with my marriage or my relationship with my children or my mother or whether they're asking about high holiday sermon preparation or getting the services together. And the fact is, it's always a little bit of both. And so today, we are blessed to have a conversation about how do you prepare for the high holidays with two of the members of our wonderful clergy team. First, we have Cantor Lori Brock. Cantor Brock has been a member of Temple Beth El's congregation since 1991, but joined the professional team in 1997 as cantorial soloist. She earned her certification from the Hebrew Union College as a cantor in 2016. She has had a remarkable career developing all kinds of innovative projects and initiatives to enhance the spiritual life and the ritual life of Temple Bethel over so many, many years. Rabbi Greg Weissman joined Temple Bethel after his ordination from the Hebrew Union College in 2013, where he also earned a master's degree in Jewish education. An educator at heart with a tremendous passion for social justice work, he has done so much in our congregation to advance our community service and social justice initiatives, helping our congregation build a more diverse and inclusive community It is so much fun to have you all here with Essential Questions. And so I wanted to just start in asking you, Lori, when you think about growing up and you think about your own Jewish journey, where did the high holidays fit in for you? When you look back, were there special traditions around the high holidays that you remember from growing up or in your own evolution as a Jew? Where did that sort of fit in with your growth and your evolution as a person? Well, when I think back of the whole high holy days, I think about meals with my family at my grandma's and grandpa's house. 
about going to services with my grandfather. Now, my grandfather went to a conservative show, and he had four tickets, and we would all rotate in and out in this service, which was pretty much all in Hebrew, which I did not understand. And yet, somehow, I honestly felt a connection. But I didn't have a formal Jewish education growing up. We didn't belong to a synagogue. And it wasn't until... I went to a Methodist college that I was forced to take a religion course that I said, you know what, I'm going to take Judaism. That's when I really started to understand why I felt so attracted to our faith. And I used to go down the street to this lady, Mrs. Citro. She lived two doors down, and she was much more observant than my family, and she would prepare for the holy days and for Shabbat, and I would sit at her kitchen table that would be covered with like this ugly plastic tablecloth, because she always did that for when it was Shabbat or the Holy Days. And she would teach me about the traditions of our, of our faith. And I just always had Jewish friends. I always felt connected, but yet I always felt disconnected until I really started to study later. And so growing up, the Holy Days were really more meals and just being with my family. How about for you, Greg? What was it like for the high holidays? Where did that fit in with your upbringing? I mean, I remember going to synagogue with my family. We would start when I was younger going to the children's service and then made our way into the family service. And I'll never forget the first time we went to the adult service. I think I was 12 or 13. And my younger sibling stayed home with a babysitter, but my parents took me. We got there early. We sat like in the fifth row of the congregation. And it was really a, an exciting moment for me. I should also mention we had just adopted a puppy. And my dad had put together the cage and he did it upside down. And so the puppy was climbing out of the top of the cage and running around the house. And the babysitter kept calling, paging my dad, because he's a doctor, he had a pager, kept paging him in the middle of the service. We're in the fifth row of the congregation, and every three minutes he's leaving until we finally we figured out what was going on. But those memories, as, as silly as that one is, the holidays for us were always a chance to be at the synagogue, to be with family. Growing up in a community outside Chicago, not unlike Boca Raton, schools were closed, and you could definitely feel the energy of the holidays coming into every single part of life because we were off of school. We had the opportunity to to do those kinds of things, and it was always a, a happy moment. I, I learned not that long ago when she passed away from my grandmother that my grandmother and my grandfather actually met on Rosh Hashanah. The service had ended, and he offered to walk her back to her house. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> I love that. For me, growing up, our family was not quite one of the founding families, one of the early families of a small reform congregation. And we became members there when I was in kindergarten. Now it's a large synagogue, but growing up, that synagogue didn't have a building. So we met for a little while in an elementary school and then in a church and then later at the JCC. And then when they finally had a little bit of money together, they built a small building. But the building was never big enough to accommodate the congregation on the high holidays. So the high holidays were always at a high school auditorium. And I remember nothing really about going to children's services. I remember my parents kind of insisted that we go to the adult services even when we were children. And I remember sort of having this sort of weird paradox of being kind of interested in what was going on and, and liking the vibe of the melodies and following along in the book. And I, I liked that I could follow the Hebrew, even though I didn't really know what it meant. And there were certain readings I remember that stuck with me. 
and also just zoning out and trying to count how many lights there were in the ceiling. Uh, but what would always happen, and I felt so bad for the rabbi of my congregation, because he used to give these very erudite sermons that I could not follow. I don't think anybody could really follow. But like he would stand there at the podium when he was about to start his sermon and the exodus would begin. Like all of the young people would start parading out the back of the auditorium. And so I used to sit as a teenager with my friends in the back or outside. It's usually a beautiful fall day in Washington. And I remember we used to have this tradition where we would try to come up with the worst sin you could do short of murder, right? So the winning one one year was, okay, if you come to the synagogue on Kol Nidre with a bacon cheeseburger, large fries, and a chocolate shake, and you sat on the bima and ate it using the Torah as a placemat. Like we figured that was the big winner one year. It's a little weird, right? But we had a great, a great time. But I remember being excited about the holidays. We had to get dressed up. And then when I was in middle school and I stopped being a flute player and I became a French horn player, I got to be the shofar blower for our congregation. And the shofar was as big as me in high school. I had this big horn and I was a good French horn player and that's actually a good embouchure to practice for the shofar. And I became a really good shofar sounder. And you know, I always kind of wasn't sure what my place was in the synagogue, but being the shofar blower made me famous and cool. And it was a portal of entry to just sort of feeling like I really belonged in the sanctuary. And that really sort of catapulted me, I think, to sort of wanting to be not just a passive participant in high holiday worship, but to be a part of it, to be an active leader. And that kind of carried me from high school into college and, and, well, I guess sitting here with you nice people. When you think, though, now in your adulthood, what are the things about the high holidays that you love the most? What do you most look forward to in the high holidays? I love the fall. I love the start of the year. I love the fact that at the same time I got my children starting a new year of school. We're starting a new year of religious school here at the synagogue. I'm starting to teach a new class of students in my ninth graders, which happens to align with the start of the Jewish new year. And so right now, everything in my life is about the opportunity that this new year represents. All of the all of the wisdom of my 40 years behind me and the blank slate of a new year in front of me is for me incredibly energizing and incredibly uplifting. And so I think about what this year will bring for me, I get excited. And I love the fact that it doesn't feel like in January when I'm in the middle of the goings out of my year to say, well, now the new year has begun. Listen, we all love New Year's Eve in December 1st, December 31st in January, but there's something about the fall and the high holidays that just everything comes together at this time of the year for that purpose for me. You know, Greg, I can't agree with you more because I love that opportunity, as you said, to restart, to clean the slate. And I think it's easy to do it in the fall because we've all had a little chance to rest and to reflect and to get out of town for a little bit and clear our heads. I I love trying to bring the newness of who I've become over the year to the High Holy Days to say, what is this High Holy Days going to be? It's never the same. This is my 27th High Holy Day here. I can't believe it. And I can't say 
two are the same. Every year it's different and it's such an opportunity to look at our lives deeply and to honestly say who we are and who we want to be in the year and to try to do better together as a community. It's interesting. There's so many different pieces about the high holidays that I love and that I look forward to. One of the things I really like is being asked to do a lot of introspection, to do just a lot of deep thinking. And that's kind of in some ways where the joy of rabbinic professional work and personal work comes together because I'm constantly thinking, what can I say to the congregation that's going to be meaningful and it's going to stir some thought or is going to help people do their work? which means that I have to do my work. And it makes me read a lot of fascinating stuff. You know, it's almost like when you make a movie, there's a whole lot that gets produced that you never see in the movie that sits on the editing floor. But I love all that stuff. All the books that I read that I don't draw on for a sermon, they led me to a different idea. I also love the High Holidays because it brings everybody together. You know, all these people that you see sometimes during the year episodically, but everybody sort of comes together. I love that the building is full. I think actually one of the hardest things I ever had to do in my career, as I'm sure you guys would agree, was when we had to lead high holiday services during COVID and we recorded it all in advance. And you had to somehow pray authentically and meaningfully in a completely empty room. And there's something about the energy of having everybody come together that just is part of that energy, that surge that sort of feels like you're getting launched into the new year. I can't agree with you more. You know, we always say it's not about numbers, how many numbers, how many people are in the room. But when that sanctuary is full and you hear that sound when everybody rises for the Shema, I literally have chills. And then I hear the voices all together. It's such an energy and a connection that, yes, during COVID, oh my goodness, when we were recording, I will never forget when they opened the ark and they said, okay, you're going to do a Venu Malkanu, but you have to look at the wall because if you look at the ark, we can't put the camera in the ark and we won't be able to see you. And I remember thinking, Oh my gosh, what did it feel like when I was with people and I really had to just take myself back there in my mind and, and close my eyes for a minute and say, what is that feeling? And, and to me, that's like the most awesome feeling for me of the High Holy Days is when we open that arc and we turn and that cello starts to play. I get to say those words of Venu Malkenu facing those Torahs like with my full congregation surrounding me. I can't even tell you the feeling of that moment. And you're right, when nobody was in the room, it was really, really hard to get to that place spiritually and emotionally. I also love the fact that for us, the High Holiday worship experience, the services, it's not one and done, right? We have the evening service and the morning service and the young children's service and the family participation service. So for us, Personally, what keeps me going through those days is the fact that I get to have like an energy spend that we do during one service and then we have a few minutes and, I, and then I rev my engines again and get ready for, for the next one. I couldn't imagine not having the opportunity to do that on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. I couldn't imagine going home at 1230 and being like, okay. We're done. That was lovely. I really love the fact that that the privilege of being part of a rabbinic team and a clergy team is that I get to be at the synagogue 
all day with a variety of different folks from the congregation and the community. So what are some of the themes of the high holidays that speak to you the most? You know, when you think about what the tradition is trying to get us to think about, the light motifs, the uh, liturgical themes, the spiritual elements, what are the things about the high holidays that really touch you the, the most? For me, I love the idea of renewal. We are the same person we've been every single year of our lives, and we are also a new iteration, a new version of ourselves. There's that wonderful passage, Chadesh Yamenu Keketem, renew our days like the days of old. You can't be new and old at the same time. Either you're new or you're old. But in fact, the whole idea is that we are supposed to put ourselves on the shoulders of the years behind us and those who've come before us and try to glean all of the wisdom that has been gathered and say, what do you want this year to be? Because it is is that blank slate. And the opportunity to imagine and look forward to a new year, hopefully for goodness and good health and happiness and peace, that is for me one of the really important pieces of the holidays. So I guess one of the most important times of the holiday is when we say the words of Unutana Tokev. I find it the most humbling and difficult and powerful moments that we approach because I look at that congregation and I see who's not there from last year. It's it's a pain and a, and a hole that that needs to be filled. And at that moment, when we go on to say Rosh Hashanah together, Yikatevun together, and Rosh Hashanah is written and Yom Kippur it's sealed. When when the congregation chants those words together, I don't believe that actually on that day. It's decided who's going to be there and who's not going to be there. But I think when I look out, I feel the preciousness of, of the moment that we're together, that we don't, we don't get this time back. And I don't know which of us will not be here next year. And yet we face our biggest fears together as a community and say these words. It is so powerful that... It just makes the holidays real and sobering. And I think for me personally, I need that. I need that grounding of saying, we are in this together and we will face this together. What's the moment that speaks to you? Well, for me, that same kind of idea, this confrontation with mortality, to me, is the most moving part of the holidays. And there's so many different ways in which the liturgy sort of spurs you to do that. But certainly, Unatana Tokef, right? Let us proclaim the sacred power of this day. Who shall live? Who shall die? Who shall see right page? Who shall not? And I do exactly, I think, what you described, Lori. I kind of look around and I say, huh, who's not here this year? It was here last year. And then kind of look around again. I go, huh, who's sitting here this year and going to be here next year? And then I always get this sort of shiver that kind of goes straight. And I'm like, what if they're talking about me? This idea about how precious and fragile life is. And when you come into confrontation with your mortality, most of what matters in life comes into pretty clear focus. I like being reminded of what matters. I like how the holidays remind me in so many different ways to think about life as this amazing, holy, and fragile, precious gift. What are you using it for? What are you worried about? 
what are the real animating parts of what makes you you and how you choose to use the gift of life? And I love being invited to think hard about that. It's incredibly moving for me to be able to do that process individually and then invite the congregation to join that process with me while we do it together on the holidays. You know, I'm always thinking about the idea that, you know, the rabbi isn't, you know, a priest who is leading worship in a in a way that is going to somehow be holier than what the con- we are shlichetzibor we're just messengers of the community we're just part of the community guiding the community one with the community in this collective process of thinking about what life is supposed to be so i guess i'd also ask you you know are there themes about the high holidays that you don't like or you know, prayers that you wish, you know, we could take an eraser and or, you know, we do skip over certain pieces, but, you know, ideas of the holidays that you just don't hanker to or that just rub you the wrong way. I mean, I'm stuck because I love Unatana Tokef and I also don't at all. Because as much as the conversation about mortality and life and death that are so important to the High Holy Days, I do fear that it leads people to think more about death than about life. Right, that the message of Unatana Tokef is not you're going to die one day, so be careful. The message is, you ha- as, as Daniel just said, you have this beautiful gift of a life. Choose life. What are you going to do in this year that is going to enhance your life? What are you going to do this year that is going to enhance the lives of those that you love and those around you? I wish we could in some ways reformulate the question of the way in which we think about mortality and knowing the historical nature of that particular utterance, that it was of a time when our people were really living in a fragile place and were very vulnerable, the things that we are fearful of today, not so much the fire and water, although we clearly know that we are vulnerable to fire and water, but the notion of, I think, maybe the sort of the morbid mortality that that brings about for, for me when I read it, I if I had my druthers, I would reframe that into a... You have this beautiful opportunity. Don't squander it. I think for me, I get very put off by the idea of God as an accountant. You know, that God is sort of going to decide what your life is going to be on the basis of how many times you light Shabbat candles. I just don't buy into that model at all. And I was thinking a few years ago of, you know, how do I imagine, you know, because there's so much language in the liturgy around God is judge, right? And it's in there in the Unitana Togaf, you are counselor and witness, judge, and, you know, and it's like, you know, terrifying. I guess it's supposed to be a little terrifying. But I remember in college, I had an English professor, Fred Bush, who was a novelist, and he taught this course that I took called Reading and Writing Short Fiction. And he starts the class basically daring anybody to take the class. He says, this class has no tests, no quizzes, and no final exam, which means I can give you whatever I want. (laughs) And he sort of, you know, terrified us. And our job was to write 40 pages of original short fiction. And what will happen is you give me a short story and I will give you comments. And you give me another short story and I will give you comments. And I am not a natural fiction writer, which is what I learned in Fred Bush's class. But I remember he was this sort of big round man and he had a big beard and it was central New York. He used to wear these big sweaters, these big cable knit kind of sweaters. 
And his office was, you know, like you think of a professor's office, just filled floor to ceiling with books and papers. And and his desk was always filled with stuff. And I would come in sort of terrified to show him my most recent mediocre work. And instead of sitting across his desk from me, he would come around to the side and he would put that big arm around my shoulders with that comfy sweater. And he'd say, okay, let's see what we've written. And the idea of God, not as the punishing accountant, but as the loving teacher saying, all right, let's see what you wrote in the story of your life last year. And how can I give you some guidance as to how you could write a better story next year? For me, that metaphor works better, but the the judge piece is hard for me. Right, and, and how about at the end of Ni'ila when the gates are closing? It's like, what, we're done? We're done for the year. Like I could do more. Like give me another hour. <laughs> I, I I just I always I always feel funny where it's like the gates are closed. We're done now. Let's go to Sukkot. Put up our sukkah. I feel like the process of repentance needs to continue, and and the result of it can continue. It's it's like you say, God doesn't judge on that day. I I can't believe that. So do you have? special traditions or things that you do during Elul to prepare yourself, whether it's, you know, I think people are always curious, well, Rabbi, what do you do to get ready for the high holidays? So maybe we'll talk a little bit, you know, first about, you know, what do you do personally to prepare yourself just as a Jew for the high holidays? And then maybe we'll talk a little bit about what you do to get ready for your professional role. But are there things that, Laura, you do that are just like your thing that you do to get ready for the new year? Well, I think I start thinking about it at Tisha B'Av because there's a lot to prepare. And you know me, I'm always doing things in advance. And because I think about that as the lowest time and then counting up to getting to Rosh Hashanah, first of all, to get to Elul and then to get there. And I think I just try to be a little bit more aware. I try to read more. I, I try to listen more. It's funny, a friend of mine just sent me an email, and he always had this quote on the bottom by Jonathan Sachs, and it said, faith is not certainty. Faith is the courage to live with uncertainty. And I thought, wow, that's been there, and I never really read it. Like, you get emails from people and the little quotes on the bottom, and I thought, that is so true. And I was thinking about this month in Elul about the questions that we're going to ponder on Slichot. Who am I? Where am I coming from? Where am I going? And I did that exercise. Remember you told me about the exercise that you did with people where you say, who are you? And you say, okay, I'm I'm a 62-year-old woman. I'm a cantor. I'm a mother. I'm a sister. I'm a, I'm a wife. I'm a friend. But who are you? I'm a lover of the arts. I love music. I am passionate about spirituality and Judaism and our people. But who are you? I am someone who feels deeply. I am someone who loves. I am someone who needs to love. And I am someone who desperately needs to be loved. And I was thinking about that. And I thought, well, what if that feeling of love, of needing to give love and receive love, is how I approach my high holy days this year? And you know me, both of these guys know me, that I get a little nervous and I get a little wound up. And 
And I'm really trying this year to say, who am I? This is who I am. And I'm going to bring who I am into the holy days with a feeling of calm. I, I think every year I try to find something that I can take myself into the holy days and be a good leader in a different way, judging by who I am that year. And I sing a lot. <laughs> and I vocalize a lot. And you guys hear it up and down the hallways. <laughs> it always seems like it's in a higher key when I first start practicing. And then I start singing. I'm like, okay, I can get up there. <laughs> I sing a lot too, but it's mostly in the shower. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> While we're enjoying Tisha Bob, I'm often usually at summer camp. And being at Camp Holman is great for a lot of reasons, but one reason is because I get to be with colleagues beyond just the ones that I work with. And so while we're having lunch or dinner, there's there's usually a few times during my weeks there where the conversation turns to, what are you thinking about this year? What are you going to be speaking about in your sermons? What are the themes that your congregation is wondering about? And so for for me, the intensity of the work begins in those few weeks at camp. And then when I come home, it's like, okay, now it's time to really get, get going. I'm a believer as a rabbi that the audience of my sermon is obviously everyone in the congregation. And because of live streaming, it's everywhere around the world. And it's the Holy One. However, the person that I'm often thinking about the most is me. If you go back and read the sermons or watch the sermons that I've given, I see that I've realized that often I'm speaking about things that I'm thinking about the most. What, what do I want to work on in my own self? I gave a sermon a couple of years ago about finding the opportunity to be more mindful and patient uh, with everyone, but really I meant with my children. I'm thinking this year a lot about the connectivity between our thoughts and our feelings and how we react to the things that come up in life and how are we able to to better suit those around us when we get these emotional reactions. And so spending the time reading, thinking, and Dan, as I'm sure you do, every thought, every new experience becomes, oh, was that something that I could potentially use for a Helita sermon? A lot of them, as you said, end up on the cutting room floor. but. There's a time during this year where with all the newness I mentioned before, it's having an extra eye and ear out for that new idea that if I wasn't tuned into this time of the year, would probably pass by. But if I let it go, what a missed opportunity that was. Yeah, I have a few rituals that I do regularly every year. So one of the rituals that I do is I call all of my family and my friends and my colleagues if I can do it in person, it's better, or on the phone, and I say, listen, if there's anything that I've done in the last year that's caused you pain or offense, I hope you'll forgive me, and I, I ask your forgiveness. And that's been a great ritual, uh, because sometimes, I mean, most of the time, people are like, no, it's wonderful to hear from you, thank you so much, and blah, blah, blah. we reciprocate. But occasionally someone says, well, you know, Dan, actually there's this thing I've never spoken with you about, but since you asked, this is this thing that has bothered me. One of the things happened, I, I had a thing with one of my sisters where she had done some things that were annoying to me. And I love my sisters and, you know, siblings are the people you love that you're thrown together, whether you would have chosen them or not. And I love them for their differences from me. But there was a thing with one of my sisters where I was upset about something, but I never said anything. And then I did this ritual and I decided, you know what? I'm going to share this thing that's bothered me. 
And similarly with a friend who did something that let me down one time. At the same time, I was always very grateful when people would share with me things that I had inadvertently done to hurt them because not only was I able to think about that and to apologize for that, to atone for that, but it just kept bringing those relationships closer. The other thing that I do every year before the high holidays is I sit and I watch Saving Private Ryan. And uh, Lori and, and Greg know, are laughing know, here know. because <laughs> they know that this is sort of my thing. But if you uh, if you don't know the movie Saving Private Ryan by Steven Spielberg, it's the story of a platoon in World War II that is sent to go rescue a certain soldier who had lost all three of his brothers already in the war. And the decision was made on high that his mother should not have to risk losing her fourth son. And it's all about the the rawness and the challenges of war and the value of human life and the sacrifices we make for each other and for the principles that we hold dear. And then at the, I'm going to spoil the movie for everybody. If you've never seen Saving Pride Ryan, you've had 20 years. It's on you now. But there's a scene at the end where they find Ryan. And he's unwilling to leave his platoon. And so the two platoons join forces for a penultimate battle. And at the end, the captain, who's played by Tom Hanks, is dying. And he pulls Ryan close and he says, earn this. And then the scene morphs into Private Ryan as an old man. I always get worked up when I do this. <laughs> uh, and he... Uh, He's standing at the cemetery in Normandy in front of the graves of all these people who gave him his life. And he pulls his wife close and he says, tell me I'm a good man. Tell me that I earned the sacrifice of all these people. And for me, like, I imagine what it would be to stand in front of all the people who sacrifice so that I get to live the life that I get to lead. And... Could I stand and look them in the eye and say, yes, I am using the gift that you gave me, that you sacrificed for, in a way that you'd be proud? And if I can't say that, then I know that I have work to do. And in many ways, I think that's exactly what the Afternoon of Yom Kippur is designed to do with the martyrology section where you go through and you learn about the martyrdom of Rabbi Akiva or the martyrdom of the folks that went through the Crusades or the Inquisition or the pogroms or the Holocaust or who sacrificed so that we could have a secure and safe state of Israel or that came to America to secure this Jewish community in which we live. And I sort of ask myself, like, could I look them in the eye? And for me, that's a very important part of the way that I prepare. But, you know, Laura, you, you talked about how you sing a lot. What does it take for a cantor to prepare for the high holy days? What is it? What do you have to do to prepare to lead the music and to lead the worship and to craft the services so that they'll be the most meaningful? Well, I think for me, I have to know my music and rehearse it so well with the other wonderful musicians I work with and choir and other cantors so that I'm not thinking about music when I'm on the bima, that I'm not thinking, how many measures is this before this? <laughs> or how am I going to hit the high note that I don't, that that's done? Like that preparation time is done. I literally go through and practice how I'm going to hit each note 
of every single thing I, I sing with my musicians so that when I get up there to pray and to lead worship, I am not thinking about music. I am thinking truly about the text, trying to be in the moment, trying to connect with the Holy One and to bring others to connect with the Holy One. And and that's when I that's when I love being a cantor is that I can pray through music and I'm not really thinking about the music that I'm truly connected to the to the text and the purpose of the moment. Is that hard to do to sort of, you know, on the one hand, there's so much technical work that goes into singing. There's so much, you know, concentration that has to happen about just the the physical musicality of rhythm and pitch and tone and all the things that go into is it hard to sort of transcend that to then be in that spiritual place? In the beginning, it's hard, but that's the blessing of doing this for years and years and years that it's like in your body. And it's so freeing that when you really know the music and you really know the text and you can get up there and pray and worship and not be worrying about those things. But it, it takes, I think that takes many, many, many years. And it's the joy of what I do. What do you do, Greg, when you're trying to, everybody says, so Rabbi, how do you prepare your sermon? You know, So like, what's your process? What do you do to sort of from beginning to end to get your messages together? It takes me an entire year. For me, I, I've, I thought about this a lot. Sermons take 12 months and 12 weeks and 12 days. Literally the day after I give my Rosh Hashanah sermon, I open up a new note on my note, my notepad on my phone and I start jotting down ideas as they come to me, what might next year's sermon be? And by the end of the spring, I usually have the idea and I'm blessed to have one opportunity to give a sermon on, on the High Holy Days. And so it's it's I'm able, I'm able to and need to distill my thoughts down to one one thought. So by the time we get to April, May, Pesach, and Shavuot is usually when I decide this is what the message is going to be for for the following following High Holy Days. So for the summer, it's the twelve weeks of reading and reading articles. And you know, Dan, you love to read books. I I read more articles and podcasts. It's just where I find the the ideas that I'm looking for. Um, although I end up often grabbing a few books because some of the stories that we need to animate and illustrate our messages often come from those deeper dives. But so it's the twelve weeks of taking a, taking the idea, finding the various parts of it, looking for the Jewish texts that are going to back it up, looking for the anecdotes that are going to back it up. And then it's not, a, it's not a consecutive 12 days, but in the month of Elul, between everything else, because there still is the start of school and running a synagogue and being a husband and a father, all those things, but about 12 different days during the month of Elul, give or take, it's obviously, it's a, it's a number. I'm sitting down and I'm writing pieces here and there, and I try to get a draft, a full draft, about a week and a half out, so we can get the editing done. And then those, that last week, I, I love the, I love those years when I get to like, the twenty fifth of Elul, and I'm like, it's cooked. That's a nice time for me. I don't always, I didn't, I don't always have that opportunity. But what that does often do is it give me an extra little bit of time to focus on the rest of the High Holy Days, right? Focus on the other words I'm going to share during the service. Focus on 
rereading the same words we've read year after year after year beforehand, but reading it in with a new light and a new sense of who we are. Those are the other pieces. It's not just about the sermon. It's also about the worship experience in total. Yeah, for me, I'm not sure it's a 12-month process, but it's definitely a process that evolves over the year. Just like you, I have a note on my phone that's called High Holiday Ideas. And as I'm thinking about themes or things that come up over the course of the year, I'll jot things down and I keep sort of adding to that little file. You know, I spend a lot of time just trying to think about, you know, what are the meta questions that people are wrestling with in our community, in our country, and amongst our people, where I can do what they don't have time to do, which is to read a ton of articles or listen to some podcasts or draw in some themes for some books and to try to use the, the, the gift that's given me to think more deeply and to invite people to explore that. So I remember a few years ago, you know, we were talking about just sort of all of the challenges that were going on in our country and all the things that were going on. And so many people I met were like, well, there's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing we can do about it. And so I said, you know what? That's a cop-out, you know? And I started thinking about complicity. And I started reading a lot about complicity. And so I started to develop an idea around that. Sometimes it's, you know, sort of those meta questions. Another year I just sort of, you know, was in the throes of fatherhood and I had three teenagers and, you know, they were uniquely challenging. And I started just being more resonant to this idea of a Venu Malkenu. And then I kind of said, I wonder for God, what's it like to parent us? <laughs> and that was sort of the theme for a sermon. But, you know, I have friends uh, who... They take July off and they go and they write their sermons and put them in a drawer and put them away and then pull them out for the holidays. I can't do that. Mm -hmm. It just feels stale. So I'm like thinking and writing and thinking and writing. And then a few weeks before, I sit down for a concentrated number of hours and I just try to burp it out, you know, like in one thought and then tighten the screws. You know, I kind of know what a word length is that I'm looking for, which I think will get me in somewhere between 15 and 20 minutes. You know, last year I was a thousand words over that budget <laughs> when I finally had my first draft, but then I started thinking, all right, you know, I don't need to include that piece. That's and I just keep tightening the screws. And the most important part actually is when I hand a draft to Amy, usually a few days or the night before, and I say, all right, so what do you think? Because uh, I trust her judgment on these things implicitly. The best thing she ever said <laughs> was I handed her a draft of a sermon one time, and I said, what do you think? She goes, it's okay. I mean, I'd sleep, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that went in the trash, and I started over and hopefully prepared something that was better. This has been such a rich conversation, and I've so enjoyed that, and it's such a privilege to share our congregation with you and to share the BMO with you. Do you have one last piece of advice for our congregation as they do their work to get ready for the holidays? You know, it's so funny. A member of our congregation the other day said to me, I have such trouble like praying with everyone and doing what I'm supposed to do as you're telling me to do it. Sometimes I just zone out and sometimes I start reading the bottom of the page and I feel badly I'm not praying the right way. And I said, you need to give yourself a break. I said, 
If you need to zone out, zone out. If you want to read something else, read something else. Don't put such pressure on yourself of who you need to be while you're sitting in the seats of our sanctuary. Just be true to how you're feeling, and you'll probably come away with a lot more. It's funny, I had the exact same thought. Right? I was years ago, Tammy and I taught a class for the ELC parents about trying to make Shabbat in the home. And we talked about the fact that, and this is still ongoing, we have been in Boca Raton now for somewhere around 530-ish weeks. I don't think we've had a Shabbat that didn't involve at some point someone doing something that someone else didn't like. There's no such thing as a perfect Shabbat, and there's no such thing as a perfect High Holy Days. And I think my advice to folks would be that as much as we try to put our best selves forward and we put on our nicest clothes and we come to the synagogue and and the largest gathering of our community, it's not going to go perfectly. And that is not – that is exactly how it's supposed to be. Our minds are supposed to wander into and out of the ideas, the themes of the service, not only the words of the liturgy, whether it's on the page or elsewhere. And if you're running a few minutes late, there'll be a seat for you. And if your kids aren't on their best behavior, neither are the adults. And that's this is not about the fact that on this day all is said and done. It's that this is another opportunity to look at how can I be in the process of improving, not how can I be improved this year. For me, I would just encourage everybody during the month of Elul or during the holidays, take out a piece of paper and just make a list of all the things for which you're grateful. We are so blessed and it's so easy to get down or or confused or worried. There's so much to be anxious about. But to get to be Jewish in 5784 in this community with this congregation, I am so grateful that I work with the most passionate team of colleagues that anyone could ever ask. I mean, I look at how hard every single member of our professional staff works for our congregation to have a peak experience on the holidays. I look at how hard our amazing cadre of volunteers works to just give so that others in the congregation can enjoy. And so uh, I just hope that everybody can just take a few moments and just count your blessings. And God willing, for all of us, a sweet, healthy, happy, successful, good new year. Amen. Amen. Essential Questions has been made possible by the Temple Bethel Jewish Ideas Incubator, committed to creativity and innovation in modern Jewish life. Many thanks to our production team, Jason Reeser, Amanda Brenzel, Jake Harris, Susan Stallone, and Eliza List. Special thanks to Jake Harris for original music and Isabella Tenenboim for the original artwork. You can find this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, and the Podbean app, as well as on Temple Bethel's website at tbeboka.org slash essentialquestions. You can rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you can spread the word, and we certainly want to know what your essential questions are. Email us at eq at tbeboca.org. We look forward to reading your comments and to addressing your ideas in future episodes. I'm Rabbi Dan Levin, and thanks so much for listening to the Essential Questions podcast. 